earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part two in our This Means War series. As I said, we'll take a sober look at spiritual warfare, functioning like a spiritual warfare primer. And the podcasts are accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Well, part two is Satan Had a Great Fall. Friends, master storyteller Max Lucado, with whom I'm sure you're familiar, invites us to overhear a conversation between God the Father and the angel Gabriel in his book Cosmic Christmas. You see, God is about to commission Gabriel to deliver a gift to earth, but he's rudely interrupted by the sudden intrusion of Satan, who irreverently invades the dialogue. Gabriel, now the narrator, lets us in on Satan's exchange with God. Satan began to growl, a throaty, guttural, angry growl, softly at first, then louder until the room was filled with a roar that must have quaked even hell. But the king was not bothered. Feeling ill, he asked. Lucifer lurked around the room, breathing loudly, searching for words to say and a shadow to say them in. He finally found the words, but never the shadow. Show me, O king of light, show me one person on earth who always does right and obeys you. So God chimes in. Dare you ask? You know there only needs to be one perfect one. One sinless one to die for all the others. Satan snaps back. I know your plans. You've failed. No Messiah will come from your people. No one's sinless. Not one. He turned his back and began his list. Not Moses. Not Abraham. Not Lot. Not Rebekah. Not Elijah. The father stood up from his throne, releasing a wave of holy light so intense. Lucifer staggered backward and fell. Those are my children, you mock, God boomed. You think you know much, fallen angel? You know so little. Your mind dwells on the valley of self. Your eyes only see your own needs. The king reached for the book. He turned it toward Lucifer and commanded, Come, deceiver, read the name of the one who'll call your bluff, the one who'll storm your gates. Satan rose slowly off his haunches. Like a wary wolf, he walked a wide circle until he stood before the book and read the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel, he muttered, then spoke in a tone of disbelief. God with us? This time the hooded head turned squarely toward the face of God the Father. No, not even you would do that. 
Not even you would go so far. You've never believed me, Satan. But, Emmanuel, a bizarre plan. You don't know what it's like on earth. How dark I've made it. It's putrid. It's evil. It's mine, proclaimed the king. I'll reclaim what's mine. I'll become flesh. I'll feel what my creatures feel. I'll see what they see. But what of their sin? I'll bring mercy. What of their death? I'll give life. Satan stood speechless. God spoke. I love my children. Love doesn't take away their freedom. Love takes away fear. Emmanuel will leave behind a tribe of fearless children. They won't fear you or hell. At this point, friends, I'm sure you're thinking, Emmanuel, that means God with us, right? Isn't that the theme of Christmas? Doesn't that relate to the incarnation? You know, God becoming human? Being born in a stable in Bethlehem? How does Christmas tie in with spiritual warfare? Well, I'm glad you asked, because today we'll continue our journey by consulting First John. And friends, I'm guessing you haven't thought of Christmas as an integral stage of spiritual warfare. I must confess that I too never really thought of Christmas in light of the subject of spiritual warfare either. Because, friends, when we traditionally think of Christmas, what images usually come to mind? You know them all, right? Well, this time around, God's Word helped me discover a new way of understanding the Incarnation, understanding Emmanuel, understanding that little babe born in Bethlehem. And, friends, you're about to become beneficiaries of my discovery. So, without further ado, let's read 1 John 3, 8, specifically the latter half, a simple short statement, but believe me, it packs a punch. Let's begin at chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, this is a reference to his second coming. We shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared, and this is a reference to his first coming, the incarnation, if you will, to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Stay with me now, because it's coming. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, here it is, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, and I'll just throw in here, the reason the Son of God was born was to destroy the works of the devil. Did you catch that, friends? Listen again. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I believe the natural question this verse demands, we ask, is how does this verse clue us in on the connection between Christmas 
and spiritual warfare. Personally, I believe the clue can be found in John's use of the word appeared. It's no coincidence, friends, that John uses this word five times in his short letter of 1 John, twice in chapter 1, twice in chapter 3, and once in chapter 4. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read, The life appeared, and this is a reference to Jesus. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Both mentions of appeared refer to Jesus' first coming. You know, that babe in Bethlehem? In chapter 3, verse 5, we read, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And the second half of verse 8, our signature verse for today, says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Finally, chapter 4, verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. So, where's appear in that verse? Well, we'll need to dig a little deeper below our English expression. The word showed is actually our word appear. In its essence, it means to make visible, manifest, show, reveal, even disclose or appear. So, chapter 4, verse 9 could easily and appropriately be translated, This is how God's love appeared among us. He sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, friends, God's love appeared in the human person of Jesus Christ. God's love became visible in Jesus well, 1 John 3, 8 prompted me to ask another question, and perhaps you've also thought of this question. What were and still are the works of the devil? Well, I propose that John answers this in chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. Let's recall the key phrases in these two verses. Verse 5 says, You know that he, Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And verse 8 he who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John understands that the works of the devil can be basically distilled down to one word, sin. In other words, while we know the works of the devil are varied, they can all be cataloged under the umbrella word, sin. Friends, picture it this way. Our English word, sin, has the letter I in the center. What does this suggest? It suggests that without Christ in the center, I am in the center. I take center stage in my life, so I don't need God. In fact, I will take the place of God. I will sit on the throne. I will rule and run my own life. Friends, I honestly think we don't realize that Satan's number one priority is to get us to join his rebellion against God. After all, wasn't Satan the first rebel? Wasn't he the first to fall? Didn't he coax our first parents to fall into sin? I'm curious, do you remember the children's nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty? 
I'm almost positive you can recite it. Maybe you're even reciting it right now in your mind. Well, here it is, friends. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, while that nursery rhyme is cute, Humpty Dumpty's fall somewhat humorous. After all, he's an egg, and he's an imagined character. Satan is not an egg. Satan is not an imagined character, and Satan's fall is not humorous. Therefore, our title, Satan Had a Great Fall. Recall the words of Jesus in Luke eighteen in Luke ten eighteen, excuse me. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Well, let's review the I statements I made a moment ago. I will be the center. I will take center stage in my life. I will not need God. I will take the place of God. In fact I will rebel against God. I will sit on the throne. I will rule and run my own life. Friends, what I'm going to share with you now will be some food for thought. Not all Christian Bible students and scholars agree on the spiritual backstory of Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Some contend that the I statements I shared in regard to sin sound a lot like Isaiah's brief portion in chapter 14, which has its own similar set of I wills and is directed to one called Morning Star, Son of the Dawn. Morning Star or Light Bringer in the Latin translation gives us our word Lucifer. So here's Isaiah's five I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Friends, I believe we can agree on the fact that sin came into the world when Lucifer pitted his will against the will of God. In symbolic language, or what's known as typology, Isaiah could possibly be informing us that Lucifer desired to make himself equal with God, declaring, I will ascend to heaven. Satan might have fleshed out this declaration during his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4, especially the third temptation. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Friends, don't we see this today in the human realm? Through the enormous influence of the New Age movement, we're being told that, yes, we are in fact gods. After all, we have his divine spark in us. Then there's, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. In Job 38, we discover that stars are another way of describing angels, particularly as they brighten the heavenly realm with bursts of praise as they behold the glory and power of God. Here again, Isaiah may be symbolically uncovering Lucifer's pursuit of usurping God's authority over his angelic creation. Then we have, I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, or the sides of the north. 
The Old Testament use of expressions like the mount of the assembly or congregation or the sides of the north point to the authority or right to rule the affairs of the universe and especially the affairs on earth per Isaiah chapter 2 and Psalm 48. And interestingly, there are even messianic links to the idea of ruling on the earth. Messiah will ultimately display his authority as king on the earth, per Psalm 2. When he comes the second time, he'll establish a throne. All nations will be under his authority. And this is pictorially represented by a mountain surrounded by smaller hills. In a sense, we might say that Lucifer was boasting about his administrating the affairs of the entire earth, which he would consider his sphere of authority. Then we read, I will ascend above the tops or heights of the clouds. In Exodus, we see that God's glory was represented by a cloud. It became the visible manifestation that God was present among and guiding the Israelites. If we attribute this expression to Lucifer, we might say that he intended to take to himself a greater glory than belongs to God himself. This is insane, friends. That Lucifer could add glory to the infinite glory of God? We could almost say that Lucifer thought he could complete what was lacking in God's glory. How ludicrous, right? Finally, as if it were the clincher, we have, I will make myself like the Most High. Lucifer was a created being and would have to acknowledge this. While he may have been the wisest in God's angelic order, he was not omniscient. He did not know all things. While he may have been the most powerful of God's created angels, he was not omnipotent. In other words, not all-powerful. He had to roam from one end of the created world to the other. So he was not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere present. Curious, isn't it, friends? In what way, then, could a created being be like the Most High God? Well, I propose that the only way Lucifer could even attempt to be like God would be to become totally and completely independent of any authority outside himself. In other words, he would become responsible to no one but himself. Hmm, friends, do we see that spirit at work in our world today? And I'm going to go out on a limb here and propose that this spirit happens to be alive and well in the church. Friends, whenever we think that we Christ followers can function independently of each other, in other words, independent of what Jesus created, the church, we're falling prey to the Luciferian spirit. By rebelling and revolting against God's authority, Lucifer became known as Satan, our adversary and accuser. By turning from God, Lucifer turned to himself, essentially becoming a selfish and self-absorbed being. This is why, friends, sinful humanity is characterized by selfishness and self-centeredness, clearly manifested by arrogant pride. And why the Apostle John in 1 John 2.16 identifies as this as the boastful pride of life. Sinful or unregenerate human beings live independently from God. They perpetuate the nature of their father, the devil, or Satan, formerly known as Lucifer. 
Last time, friends, I mentioned that two important truths in spiritual warfare are, first, to know our enemy, and second, to know ourselves. Friends, please listen carefully. Unless we come to understand something of the basic selfishness, pride, and the independent spirit that characterized Lucifer, or Satan, when he left his original state, we'll never understand ourselves, nor the temptations that assault us daily. How easy is it, friends, to be tempted and fall prey to walking according to Lucifer's pattern? Here's just a few thoughts. We can become proud of our education. We can become proud of our intellectual capacities. We can become proud of our attainments in this life, this material realm, and fail to recognize that all we have our own is a gift from God. We can become proud of our position in the professional world. Friends, when we view ourselves being apart from God, we're perpetuating the spirit or sin of Satan walking our own way. But we need not despair because this pattern can be broken, but only when we come under the kingship or rulership of Jesus, then and only then can we destroy the works of the devil. Now, friends, my hope here is that you'll become Bereans and search the scriptures to see if these things are so, as Paul complimented the Berean Christian followers in Acts 17. Because the next portion, Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, is even more thorny if applied to Lucifer. A few factors to consider might be, first, the opening prophecy against the ruler or prince of Tyre. The word used here is different from verse 11, the king of Tyre. Under this rant we find, you were in Eden, the garden of God, and on the day you were created. Created is the same word used in Genesis 1. If this prophecy were against a man, it would seem that born would be a more fitting word choice. Second, we read, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. Cherubs are a class of angels. Created is used again just a verse later, saying, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Earlier, this one addressed was told, You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And third, right after this we read, Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. This would be the only direct reference to Lucifer's pride in Scripture, which Paul may be corroborating in 1 Timothy 3.6, that the devil was judged for his conceit. These points, however, friends, are by no means conclusive in associating this king of Tyre with Lucifer, so caution should be exercised here. The bottom line, friends, is that the devil has his own will, and what he wants more than anything else is to make us humans captive to it. We Christ followers are not immune. In 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, we read, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. 
And 2 Corinthians 4 informs us that the apostles had renounced their secret and shameful ways, were not using deception nor distorting the word of God. Paul goes on to say the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that's displayed in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is why the Apostle John instructs those in his community in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. Friends, I implore us all, let's not fall for the traps of the devil and give him the satisfaction of calling us one of his works. Let's keep our spiritual wits about us and escape them. Erwin Lutzer once said, no matter how many pleasures Satan offers you, his ultimate intention is to ruin you. Your destruction is his highest priority. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'm enjoying hearing your feedback on these teachings. Friends, keep in mind that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. If it's blessing you, please join the support team. Your faithful support helps keep this program on the air. Just write me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, Email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.